Welcome to the Podglomerate. Well, um, what would worry any any parent? How uh, how is he going to get by? How is he going to make a living? Uh, he's going to have to start basically start from scratch uh, and uh, and and fend for himself. Okay, so I got my passport. This is status. The show about how immigration impacts people. Um, Give me one second. If you're new here or you haven't been around in a while, you'll want to go back and start with part one of this series on Jonathan. You're going to want all that context. The imagery of a passport representing a life would usually be too much of an Instagram cliche for my taste. And I'm not sure this time is different. But the metaphor is set comfortably in its lawn chair on the front porch of my brain. And I think there's good reason for that. At the risk of spoiling anything, I'll just say that we're now at a point of the story that feels tangible to me. As we sat on our bed recording this interview we ended up flipping through the physical pages of Jonathan's passport, looking at stamps to put the timeline together. They've got the dates of entry or exit marked on them, and in Jonathan's passport, it's the time between those dates that tells me the most. Each of these episodes has represented some amount of time before or between those stamps. I can point at one stamp and say, oh, that's when you came to Miami and met your parents. I can point at the next and say, and that's when you had to leave. I can point at several more that bookend pieces of his life that you haven't heard yet. This next part of the story, it leads to more stamps. This is part four, re-entry. Um, the day that I had to go back, like right before I had to call my sister and tell her, it's like, hey, this is happening. I don't have a place to stay. I need to, you know, I need a place to stay there. And of course, as soon as I arrived in Bogota, um... They came and picked me up and then they took me to the house. I lived there for six months. I didn't work for six months. I had to rebuild my identity in Colombia, which was like one of the hardest things. Because, I mean, as soon as I arrived at the airport, literally, like they looked at my passport and they're like, um, welcome back. This ID no longer works and therefore you need to get new IDs. And so it's like, it was just like rebuilding my identity. Jonathan had to rebuild an identity because it was the first step of building a life. Once I got to Colombia, it hit all at once. It's like, I'm not going back. What am I going to do? I don't know anybody here. I've, you know, I've gone through like job searches down there. Graphic designers were just not wanted um, anywhere because at the time it's like everybody wanted you to do freelance, but the freelance they wanted you to do, they wanted you to spend a lot more money than like to make a project than they wanted to pay. So it was just like not really worth it. And so I got my teaching certification from um, Cambridge University. And with that, I was able to kind of like find a job teaching English as a second language. So it wasn't exactly what he planned on doing after school, but it pretty immediately led to some real opportunity. I applied for the university job and I got that as well. I actually celebrated because it was like a really good job. I was 23 years old and it was like one, like when people... 
when people in Colombia hear that you're a professor at one of the top universities, they're like, holy shit. And it's like, it's a reputable university. It's one of the top in Colombia. So it's like, for me, it was my very first job, like full-time job, um, teaching English as a second language. And I was, I had the opportunity to put all the incoming freshmen in their respective levels of English. And I also gave their like seniors their final exam for, um, for them to be able to graduate. For the first year that I was working at the university, like I didn't, I didn't use my paycheck for me. Everything I did was just like to make sure that my nieces and nephews had books, had uniforms, had food. So every month when I got my paycheck, I always asked them, it's like, you know, what do you need? What can I do? How can we use this money for you to be able to, um, you know, make sure that your kids are going to school? Because education for me is a huge thing. Like, it's a huge thing. Um, and so like when I moved on my own, they thought that I was wasting my money on rent. But then there was a time where like they knew exactly like even before the end of the month, like they knew exactly how they were going to divide my check. And that to me, like I got really angry and I'm like, you know, I'm trying to help you. Um, and so it's like at that moment, I just realized like, you know, I'm the youngest one of my entire family. There's no way that I need to support all of them. And Adam and I try to make it work. And I mean, for the first year that I was in Colombia, he came to visit me three times. Um, every time that he came, it was a little bit more, it was a little bit different because I was working at a university. I was, you know, a professor. I was teaching English as a second language at a university. Um, I was doing corporate training. So it's like, I was always busy. And so for like, he's all he wanted me to do was to like go go to work go home play video games with him all night and then that's it like he didn't want me to have kind of like a social life outside and i remember one night when like i went out with all my colleagues from the, the university and like we went out to have a beer and things like that and he got really really angry and he got really jealous and like when we talk on the phone he's like you know i hope like yeah i yeah He's just said all these like discriminatory things. Um, and I'm like, why are you being this way? It's like, I just went out to have a beard. It's like, you know, like there's my coworkers have been asking me for almost a year to go with them and things like that. And, and I think that night was the night where we just kind of like, we broke up. Um, and it hit me because it's like, I didn't have anybody else. Like, it was just like, I went into like a full year depression. It was more of a like, I don't know what to do. You know, I've lost, I've lost my country where, where, where I believe that I was from. Um, I've lost my partner. I went to work. I went home, slept. I went to work. I went home and slept. I went to work. I didn't care about anything else at the moment. I didn't care about anything. Um, that whole immigration part, I started learning a little bit more about it. And I thought it was bullshit. I thought it was just like one of those things that I'm like, like my parents are American. They adopted me. They, you know, it's like I feel more American than anything else. And it was just like, it was a very tough second year in Colombia. It was very, very tough. It was one of like probably the toughest years of my entire life. And that's said it was tougher even before when I, like, when I was in the streets. I don't know what I did. I, I thought I was doing everything right, but apparently I wasn't. During this period... Something happened that forced Jonathan to ignore the differences he had with his biological family in Colombia. Um, one of my sisters 
um, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She's not the she's not the oldest. She's the second oldest, I guess. Uh, when she went and had some exams done, and like we found out that she had ovarian cancer, it was already too advanced. We couldn't do anything. I mean, the only thing that we could do is like you know just um, kind of support her. It was really really difficult. As the youngest one in my family, I kind of took kind of like the reins of everybody because nobody knew how to deal with it. I was kind of like the adult through the whole situation. Jonathan and his family spent the next couple of years taking care of their sister. It became an everyday part of their lives. Jonathan, having now established a life in Bogota, reconnected with some of the people he knew when he was younger. Like, I did a couple of conferences with the founder of the orphanage, right, to kind of, like, share my life story with them. And then I got to, like, sit down and talk to my godmother, and I didn't realize how much of a religious person she had become. And so, like, it wasn't really one of those things that it was enjoyable. I was like, I mean, she was my godmother, but we didn't really talk that much. He was just like, I wanted to see her. I wanted, I wanted to kind of build a relationship with her because, I mean, when I was in, when I was in Colombia, when I was in the orphanage, she was really nice. She was the one that, you know, like taught me how to do ceramics and like kind of like opened my eyes to being an artist. Um, and then when I, back to, when I went back to Colombia, everything, like it was just different. It was just different. So I've, to this day, that was the only time that I've ever so I spoke to her and I haven't spoken to her since then. And that's, it's been almost 10 years. There's one other person you might be excited to know he got in touch with. I, I, I called the orphanage and they actually like put me in contact with her um, because I was just like, hey, you remember this French lady that, you know, liked me and she wanted to take me to France and things like that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. she actually lives, lives in Colombia. She lives in Bogota. And so they put me in contact with her and I went and had dinner with them. And it was just like, it was really nice because she saw me as one of her sons. It was just like, it was amazing. Like the welcome that I got when I went to see her and like, it was hugs. And I got to see, um, her daughter whom I have met when I was in the orphanage. And like, that's the main reason they wanted to adopt me because we got along really well and they fell in love with me. Um, and it was just nice. It was just beautiful. It was just like one of those things that I'm like, I mean, we had dinner every once in a while. And I mean, it was just like, I mean, she understood that I was an adult and that, you know, I was college educated now. So it's like, it was just very, it was more of a like, it wasn't a regret that they couldn't adopt you or anything like that. It was more like she was really happy that I was able to like take the opportunities that people gave me and actually made something out of them. Um, so she felt proud. Um, she felt like, uh, I mean, I, if she could have adopted me when I went back to Colombia, she would have, <laughs> um, she felt really proud. Like she honestly, like, and I'm pretty sure to this day, she still sees me as a son and I still keep in contact with, um, her daughters and everything like that. So it was like, it was just like one of those things that is just like really pretty to see because it's like, she's one of those persons that has unconditional love for anybody. And, she had, um, after me, after, after she found out that I was, you know, in, in the United States, she actually waited a couple of years before she adopted a, um, a son. And, um, yeah, and like, and it was really fun. I got to meet them all and we got to play games and we got to talk in French, which my French is really terrible, but you know, like 
it was really enjoyable. I was able to practice a little bit. At this time, Jonathan was thriving at work. The university had asked for his help in building an art history major, and he was spending a bunch of time researching to make that happen. There was even talk of a promotion. That's why what happened next came as a shock. At the end of the day, they found out that I was gay, and they terminated my contract. Like, they didn't do it, like, directly. They, did, they just did it because they were trying to, like, figure out, like, what they were trying to do with the, with the department. Um, but to me, it was just a little bit... The way they did it wasn't the right way, just because it's, like, a week before they had... Um, you know, asked me if I wanted to be one of the, like, one of the department lead leaders for, like, a respected level of English and make sure that, I, you know, everything was going really well. And then a week later, they're like, hey, unfortunately, we're restructuring the department and you have to go. There's a good chance you're asking what I asked in this moment. I know that it was about me being gay because, first of all, it was a very religious university. Second of all, I made the mistake of going to one of my coworkers' party whom I knew he was gay, um, older gentleman, and he made it like a birthday party. And like at that birthday party, he invited all his friends and things like that. Um, and so I went and kind of like, I got along a lot better with like the gay crowd because it's like, you know, like than the other people. And I, and I feel like she, he had some of the coworkers that were there. And so I think one of the coworkers that we had there kind of like told the department that I was at that party and, you know, like I was in... Um, that I was, like, not even talking to them. That I was more interested in, like, you know, the um, gay culture than anything else. And so that's how they found out. I had saved enough money to kind of, like, give myself a little bit of a break. Then I'd work for a couple of months. And then one of my friends from the british console which where we do our english certification through the through cambridge university was working for a company and you know like we were talking we went we actually went to see like a soccer game it was england against united states and during that time i'm like hey what are you doing and he's like i'm working for this company it's like really good and so i'm like he's like yeah you shouldn't your resume because at the time i was just like yeah i'm i'm i might be looking for a job and he's like okay and so i sent my resume to to renata and she called me right away and then I went and had her in like an interview with her and I got hired. And so like I, I got to work with like these top notch, you know, multinational companies in Colombia. Um, and even before then, I was already doing like, you know, freelance with Johnson & Johnson Medical in Bogota. So I was training a lot of the people from Johnson & Johnson on, on how to communicate with customers from different countries and things like that. So I was making good money. I was happy. I was in, it was interesting. Um, and I did that for four years, four and a half years. When Jonathan talks about living in Colombia during this time, these are the years where he sounds the happiest. He made all of his friends during this time. He started dating again. This feels like the moment he really came into his own in Bogota. I was very social. I visited places that I grew up in the streets. And so when I went back, it's like those places are, were actually like beautiful parks that, you know, they have, they had cleaned them up and everything like that. So it's like, it was really nice to see the progress that Bogota had made. Um, also, the transportation system was really good. Once kind of like I went over that depression and, like, you know, I finally told myself, it's like, I need to do something about that. Um, I started being really social, especially with people at work. 
um we started going out like even even renata and uh you know they invited me to the clubs and everything like that when they went out and it was really fun now like i was very social i was in a very social environment and with the boyfriend that i had at the time he was also very very social um especially with like the people that he was living with and it was really nice because i got to see like i got to meet really really good friends uh through him and like they're my best friends through to like this day like even when he was no longer around, we still like played golf together and, you know, play tennis. And like we like I went for a Christmas to their uh, house in, in a different city in Colombia. So it was really nice uh, because it was like even without him, I was still maintaining like that social life that I had. And then like I had a boyfriend who was a policeman or he had just retired from being a policeman. And like his group of friends was completely like upscale colombian lgbt society um and it was really fun because it was just like it was just different i was not used to being like that social but i mean you know me now i do know him now but we're not there yet during all of this jonathan and his family had been looking after their sister but at a certain point it became clear that the situation was deteriorating. They got together to make a decision. Yeah, it was two years of fighting, um, two years of constant going back and forth. Eventually, we decided, as a, as, as a family, as brothers and sisters, um, we all talked and we decided that we did not want her to be in the hospital. It was terminal. We knew that you know it was going to happen. And we all decided that we were going to take... Um, take her home and one of my sisters um she had a room so like that's where she could be my sisters took turns you know kind of like helping her and like being there for her and everything like that um they took turns helping her i i try not to get too much involved in it because for me while i was trying to be the adult and trying to calm everybody down it was really really difficult at such an early age you don't expect for your sister to pass away I was working, and I got the phone call from my sister, and the first thing she said on the phone, she's like, she left us. And I couldn't, like, I couldn't process anything at the time. I just stayed quiet. At this point, I want to give you the chance to skip forward about 60 seconds. Death is a difficult topic, and there's a graphic description coming up that might not be for everyone. The guy that came in, uh, like, with the ambulance came and picked up my sister, and she's like, he was he was just like, I need somebody to help us. And, of course, it's like my entire family was shaking. It, they, they were all crying. They didn't know what to do. And I told everybody, please get out. Um, me and my older sister, we went up to where my sister Yudi um, was laying um, and we had to basically put her in a trash bag. Um, it wasn't a trash bag. It was more of like, you know, that black um, thing where they take people to the morgue. Um, but to me, it's just, it looked like we were just throwing, you know, like one of my family members away. And I didn't, I, I, I didn't cry at all um, because I was trying to be the, like the toughest person 
in there. Everybody was crying. Everybody was outside. Like they, they didn't know what to do. And I was just, I was just trying um, really hard to kind of like maintain, you know, like, hey, we're gonna get through this. You know, we're we're, we're strong people. Now remember that as soon as I put her in the ambulance, my boyfriend at the time, he just came rushing at me, and I just I had to hold him. And after two days, like, we they took her to the church where, you know, like, they do the final blessings and things like that. And when I was in church, and as soon as the priest started talking, I just lost it. Like, I could not. I have never in my entire life cried that much. Not even when my biological father was, you know physically hitting me or um when i was being being you know beat up on the streets or anything like that i have never in my entire life cried that much and it was one of those things that you never expect anything like this to happen and the fact that you had to be the adult when you're like the youngest person there and you had to be the strong one I'm happy that, you know, she's no longer suffering. Uh, you know, like as soon as we as soon as like I found out that, you know, she had passed away, like it kinda like while I was a little bit tense, I also felt kinda like a sense of relief that she was not suffering, that she was not going through pain, that we didn't have to administer medicine or like anything like of that class. So it's, it was it was tough. My family and I, we kind of reconciliated for a little bit, but then, you know, like, back again, we just, we're just very different. And then, like, some problems within the family started happening, and they wanted me to solve them, and I'm like, I can't do this. Um, it's not It's not my job to do it. It's not my job to deal with their problems, because they... I mean, there were adults. It was like I don't, I, 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 just because I solve a problem, it doesn't mean that I'm, you know, as capable of solving every single one of them. While Jonathan had reverted to the strained relationship with his biological family, his relationship with his parents was still thriving. From what I can tell, he talked to them at least every week. He and his dad spoke regularly. They really are best friends, and they kept that up even from far away. They didn't get to see each other much but they did start a new tradition together for the holidays. I give my parents like kind of like the opportunity for them to like fly to South America. So every Christmas we spend in a different country. Um, and it was fun. Uh, I enjoyed having them down there and they got to see something, you know, like they got to travel to South America and everything. We went to Panama. We went to Barbados. Barbados was fantastic. Um, we went to Argentina and then like we chose Cartagena because they wanted to see Cartagena. And so it was a great opportunity for them to meet another one of my sisters. Christmas for me was really, 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 really tough because I have gotten so used to being with my parents during Christmas and New Year's. And every time we went to a different country to, uh, you know, to visit for Christmas and things that it was, while it was wonderful, it always was like the week before Christmas or the two weeks before Christmas. Um, because, you know, they wanted to be in the States with the family and everything like that. And like, you know, they wanted to be here. And every year was really tough. And every year I went, like, as soon as I landed in Bogota by myself, like December 22nd or 23rd, 
most of the time I just went to my apartment, kind of opened a bottle of um, whiskey, and I know this sounds really bad, but and put Christmas carols every summer, every Christmas, every Christmas, and I just sat there just like sipping on whiskey and just like thinking about you know like all this shit that was happening and like I'm my parents' only child. There is no there is no older siblings. Um, if something happens to my mom, if something happens to my dad. I can't travel. I can't, you know, I can't just get on a plane and go there. I can't get in a car and drive there. And so it's like, it started to get to me, like physically and mentally as like not being able to be there for my parents if something happened. And yeah, while I had my family in Colombia and things like that, we have grown apart a lot. So it was just like, not something that like, you know, I just went over and spent, you know, every Christmas and every holiday with them. That's like, we were just too different. It was really great to see his parents but it still wasn't the same as being home with them on Christmas. They talked about the possibility of Jonathan applying for a visitor's visa. That way he could at least visit on holidays. And he was perfectly within his right to do so. He'd never been out of status while he was in the States, and he'd left within the window he'd been asked to. Um, And so every time that immigration part came up with my parents, they got really, really freaked out. And they were really afraid that I was going to be denied the visa, that I was going to be denied you know, like a visitor's visa to this country. They were really afraid that if I was denied that I could not apply. And eventually, like I was dating somebody and eventually that person kind of pushed me to kind of like, you have to apply. doesn't matter what your parents say. doesn't matter what you do. If they deny the visa, then they will deny the visa. Like you can apply after a year after you've been denied. And finally I broke down and I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply for it. Did all the paperwork. Everything went well. Went to the American embassy in Bogota, had my interview, and I just talked to the person and, you know, he's like, why are you going to the United States? And I'm like, I'm going to go visit my parents. You know, I'm adopted. I show him the adoption papers, you know, from like the courthouse in Houston. And as soon as he took a look, look at them, he's like, enjoy your visit. Like I had all the paperwork. I had my own car. I had an apartment. I had everything. So like I had everything in Colombia. And so it's like, as soon as he looked at the adoption papers, I'm like, and we just started talking and, and he was just like, so what, you know, what, do you have any problems in the system? I'm like, no, I'm an only child. Um, I just want to go see my parents. I haven't seen them and, you know, I haven't visited them in about five years. And they're like, hmm, enjoy your visit. And I got a, I got a visitor's visa for 10 years, valid for 10 years. And so like, as soon as I got it, I called my parents and my parents like, they were like ecstatic that I got it. And I'm like, why do you guys ever doubt it that I wasn't going to get it? And so, like, we sat down. In fact, like, November, the first week of November, I was already here in the United States visiting my grandmas. Just because I have not seen my both my grandmas in, like, you know, in, in like, seven years. And so I wanted to visit them. And so, like, I flew to Dallas. So my parents and we drove down. We drove down to Louisiana, visited my mom's mom. And then we drove down to like the bayou in Louisiana to uh, visit my dad's mom. And it was just a week of like, it was tiresome because all I did was travel. Like I didn't get a day of rest, but it's like for me, it was the most gratifying thing that I was able to see my grandmas, even if something was going to happen or anything like that. Like I, I, I got to see them. Visitor visas are non-immigrant visas. Jonathan's visa let him take trips to the U.S. for non-business purposes. And he wouldn't have to renew that visa for 10 years. That didn't mean he could stay in the U.S. for 10 years. It just meant that if he wanted to take a vacation to go see his family, he could. And that meant he could be home with his family for the holidays. Um, I went back to Colombia, 
continue working. And then I was back here for Thanksgiving. And it was my first Thanksgiving, like with my family in five years. So it was just like my mom actually like cooked Thanksgiving. And she was really nice because she had not cooked Thanksgiving since I left. We've had, we've always done Thanksgiving at home. And like she made this feast. <laughs> There's a picture. Um, and it's a picture that I keep on my desk of us, like all three of us with aprons on. And that was like the first Thanksgiving that I came back. Around this time, Jonathan had started to think about what was next for him. He was thinking he might try and go back to school. And I decided to start applying for master's degrees. Around, like, I applied to the University of Victoria, um, to master's degrees, and they didn't accept me because I didn't have enough experience. And then I got a letter from the University of Tulsa. Sorry for the delay. Um, we wanted you to know that you've been accepted to the University of Tulsa, uh, to the business program, we wanted to uh, wanted you to know that all the paperwork is on the way. I kind of like started scratching my head, like, why am I getting the, um, a letter from the University of Tulsa and things like that. And then I, re- I remember one night that I was just like, <laughs> I wasn't drunk or anything. I was just like, I'm like, hey, what the hell? I'm going to start the application. I think I started the application. I never finished it, but I hit saved. And I talked to my parents and my parents was like, what? When did you apply? Um... And I'm like, no, I applied, like, I think I applied, like, towards the end of, like, May or something like that. I don't, I don't remember. I honestly don't remember applying to Tulsa. And so it was just, like, everything went really quick. And then, like, I had to go back to the embassy and, um, you know, present my university paperwork and everything like that. And they gave me the F1 visa. And then by December 17th, 2012... I was back in the United States um, getting ready for school. The cool thing about going back to school was just like Tulsa was willing to take some of the credits that I did from like my graphic design degree into my business degree. First of all, I didn't have the money for it. I didn't want my parents to spend a lot of money on it. And I mean, I came back with a different mentality of it as well, like a little bit better understanding of like not better understanding of immigration, it's just like better understanding of like what I had to do in order to like, you know, make sure that I made, that I had a full advantage of my F1 visa and things like that. I flew to Dallas. I used my dad's car to go up to Tulsa. And then I started looking for apartments in Tulsa because I did not want to live on campus. I was already like a grown man, old man. So I was like, I did not want to live on campus. I did not want to live in the fraternity house. Um, so I started looking at apartments. And I remember really well the apartment complex that Adam and I had lived on um, was really nice. And so I kind of like went back there and, you know, I got, you know, I I got a really nice one bedroom apartment. Um, And it was just like, I mean, it was on a highway. It was about 15 minutes from the university. So it wasn't that bad. You're like, you know, the drive wasn't that long and even less than 15 minutes. You can get anywhere in Tulsa. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like. And in January uh, 2013, I started university again. Nearly six years after he left Tulsa, Jonathan was back in school and living in his old apartment complex. He had a plan to finish his degree in two years. He understood the immigration process a little better this time, 
he was ready to go. And about an hour and a half west of there, I was finishing up my own degree and making my own plans to move. A year later, in January 2014, Jonathan and I were strangers living in the same city. We didn't live that close, but you can get anywhere in Tulsa in 15 minutes. Status is produced by me, Matt Horton. Music was provided by Breakmaster Cylinder. Status is a member of the Podglomerate. You can learn more and listen to the other Podglomerate shows at thepodglomerate.com. Status will return in two weeks with the final part of Jonathan's story. <laughs>